hello. It's my pleasure to have a special guest today and co-host. Our co-founder and managing partner of the Wilshire Group is joining me today. Welcome, Gretchen Case. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Hello. I'm glad to be doing another podcast. Yeah, we're going to keep you busy, I think, with these or at least part of our, our team busy, especially in the RI space. So it'll be nice, nice future segments to come. We're already planning for season two. I love it. All right. Well, um, in today's episode, everybody, Gretchen and I are going to be geeking out over revenue integrity. So we pre-apologize for this. Um, we're going to jump right into our hot topic segment. Um, our hot topic segment is where we explore um, trends, um, actual things ha- happening in revenue integrity um, today, and kind of things that are going to cover hit us legislation-wise in this in this hot topic segment for a change. So it's not our traditional, but that's what this whole special episode is about. Always. Rev integrity is always the special issue of the day. Um, yes. So I know, and I'm very excited to geek out on rev integrity because, you know, I love it. And I definitely want to talk about what we've been doing in that space with, uh, with, with Wilshire, especially the eight pillars that we've come to define and deploy at some clients, which has been really exciting. But yes, Always near the end of the year, I guess everybody's trying to get stuff off their plate, including regulators, and there's all sorts of stuff that's out there right now that's happening. And I think uh, most interestingly and significantly, it relates to the 340B reimbursement um, that's been changing in the last couple of weeks. So I'd, I wouldn't want to get it to give the entire picture um, officially, however, People have been following this, which I know most people in, in hospital reimbursement and rev integrity have been following. There have been some significant directions provided by the, the, the courts uh, recently as to how Medicare is supposed to be reimbursing hospitals. So we know 2018, CMS made a major change in the way they reimburse hospitals for these medications they reduced it significantly from ASP plus 6% to ASP minus 22%. Big hit for hospitals. Um, as a result, they immediately changed the reimbursement that year. Of course, lawsuits were filed. Uh, it got all the way up to the Supreme Court, who ultimately ruled, and I'm not an attorney, but this was the most compelling reason I heard, which was that Um, that CMS had overstepped their boundaries so that they did not have the jurisdiction and the the, um, ability to make a change in a reimbursement methodology without going into a legislative process. And they did that and they said that they can't do that technically and you need to go back and and repay those, those funds and pay correctly. So what... Also happened, though, at the time that reimbursement was changed, Medicare said, we're going to do an offset to the reduction that you're getting over here by giving you an increase to 4% of your outpatient reimbursement. So your OPPS for the following year was going to be adjusted to make up for that. Of course, that OPPS adjustment affected a lot of hospitals, whether or not they were a 340B provider or not. So that was kind of issue number one. Now, when the courts have said, yeah, go back and pay according to the way that it was originally established, are they going to try to make some other, you know, offset the offset? So what about that increase that everybody already got? So lots of confusion about how to resolve this. 
Recently, though, I think it was a district court judge said, you know, basically hospitals hadn't been paid yet. And he said, pay them immediately. And so as of this crazy date, September 28th, didn't say date of service, didn't say claim, uh, didn't say, you know, discharge, anything like that. Start paying correctly according to the, the legal decision. So stop right there. Not sure if hospitals are doing that. Not sure if they have the system set up in order to calculate the correct XR given a decision like that. Um, do Did they start paying and these things now look like credit balances or people don't yeah. know what's going on? Um, did and, communication even get to us? I mean, like no. most of our, our partners are like, what are you talking about? No, oh. and various and various colleagues that I've been talking to, including pretty some significant uh, former, you know, CMS people that have talked about nobody's quite sure exactly what's going on and what should be done because of these questions that still are on either side. And what is interesting is that if you look at the max, it's like max gone rogue. I could say again, but um, so one one says one thing. This is what you should do. Some of them say things will be sort of re-adjudicated automatically. Others put the burden on the provider. Then the directions to the provider aren't clear. Do we go back to the beginning of this, this calendar year or is it only from September forward? And people have been documenting and snipping screens and, and all of the stuff because they change almost every day. So it's a lot of confusion. Um, people are wondering, do we go back? Should we start an effort to do sort of a backfill rebuild process right now? If we did, how do we do that? Do we do it through the you know, our, our patient accounting system? Do we do something direct in DDE? There are pros and cons to both. Uh, it's just it's just a shame that it's so complicated, but the decision was in the favor of the providers and there is money to be received there. So people should be looking at, especially right now, from September 28th and forward, looking to get their right, correct 340B and reimbursement according to the old standard of ASP plus 6%. I know we were talking and sharing with our team here at Wilshire this morning during our community college program that we have for cross-pollination education on topics. But what I took away from that and thinking even more so now sitting back in operate daily operations that, you know, is, oh, wait, Medicare just had their floor pause as well. So they've been holding all the claims for their quarterly update. And the question really is, is did they get the, out to the max that legislation change from that um, judge's ruling of as of today, pay them correctly? And did they even update it on the floor yet? And that that's the question. And I, I, I did some claim looking this morning but um, with my team that I'm supporting. And no, we're, we're seeing a couple new claims coming in from that September timeframe without it. So the question really comes into play is, you know, how is that communication driven? trickling over. And now are all the floors going to do, uh, you know, Max going to do another pause to update, or are we going to have to wait until January's update for the retro payments to come back through and how are they going to do it? So it'll be, I think it's going to be very interesting and then see if the courts are actually going to come back and say, well, now you have to give them an even higher percent because it should have been in their books and they could have been claiming interest on it. So. Right. And I think, I mean, it makes it really difficult to, you know, we've worked, several clients have called and we've reached out both ways and they're sort of like, what do we do? Uh, 
I don't know. You know, it's sort of like, well, there's there's this sort of pot of funds that we were due. It's just that you have to go through, you know, a gauntlet. It's like one of those crazy shows on TV where you're running across rivers and things are bopping you off. Wipe out. <laughs> yeah. Wipe out. Well, yeah, the pot of money's over there. You just gotta get through this whole thing and then you get the money. And and it's really difficult to advise people to go ahead and just gear up and get get yourself ready and get yourself across that obstacle course because I don't think there's I don't think that we finished hearing exactly everything we're going to hear around this because of the the lack of understanding about how sometimes these changes impact providers and and the processes we have to go through I mean it's not like suddenly they're paying it at a you know ASP plus six percent because I've got system updates to make my system, whatever's inside of my system that calculates, calculates XR, that's got to be updated. Otherwise, they're me. I got a credit balance. I don't know. I, I yeah. definitely focus September 28th forward and try to, that. That's that's something that we can at least play with, right? So we should be seeing that claims are going out. They have those meds on them, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think some of the past, the, re- the rest of 2022 and before is what's going to be more complicated. What are your thoughts, you know, stepping back and we know this is like a Medicare direct and a Medicaid and a Medicaid program direct impact, right? But then if we flip and put on our hats and say okay, revenue integrity, now we have to engage managed care contracting potentially, right? Because they've already gone knowing that Medicare was doing these cuts and that they're going to increase this OPPS component by let me offset you a little bit what did they negotiate, right? Because they're getting the benefit of these lower cost drugs as well. We can apply it across the board to all of our patients. We should be in that regard. So how are they, you know, what what do we think managed care contracting should be on the lookout for as they're looking at reimbursement and starting to do that? Do they need to go back potentially and, and rehab these conversations with their commercial sides? That's a great question. I mean, I know that the, they often are looking at sort of medic, uh, medication reimbursement in that area. And, you know, sometimes regulatory changes to the CMS side doesn't necessarily impact the commercial side. Um, it just is so vitally important for hospitals that are able to purchase medications at that cost reduction. I think someone estimated that the, the, Legislation when they when they well I should say when when CMS made the decision that they did years ago now it was about a thirty percent haircut for hospitals with outpatient programs and then that looking at now right now there's about a ten billion dollar number on the plate that we're supposed to reconcile at some point so I think it's sort of like stay tuned if you're if you are one of those that surf the Mac nets it's kind of interesting stuff is changing daily on the CMS website as well. Um, and again, trying to be good stewards and work with our clients to advise them on a strategy is kind of where we are right now, um, as well as just trying to understand the regulation as, as they come out. Absolutely. I, you know, and I think it behooves all of our listeners too, in, in all spaces to step back and say, okay, as we're now seeing impacts to 340B and we saw these slowing pipe 
price changes with the new regu- the new final rule as well, where Medicare now has the ability to start negotiating drug costs directly. Is this going to phase out 340B at some point in time and we're all leveraging Medicare's pricing? We don't know. It's a good stipulation and hypothesis out there, but I think we all need to really watch what is that going to do and how with Medicare going to the pharmaceutical companies directly for this price negotiation, how's that going to pave it forward back to the healthcare systems actually providing the work? Or is this just going to be big money for government and we're still taking the cut on the back end? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things too, where I saw so many changes this week on websites that I started kind of laughing. It reminded me of the the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, because I have this great, uh, this great theory that, you know, it was not, they weren't held until 2021, but they had mass produced everything for 2020. So I can imagine five years from now, 10 years from now, a couple saying, well, they held them in 2020. And they're like, no, they held them in 2021. Look at the pictures. It says 2020. And yeah. you know, you're the, all these arguments about like, no, it was 2021. I definitely remember. I'm like, well, here's the proof right here. So it's a little bit like with this regulation, which is they said that they would pay it back to January. And, you know, if you didn't do a print screen or a screen grab at that point, it doesn't say that anymore. And so I just think it's going to be one of those things where people are going to be speaking on the information that they did read, which was accurate that day. And then now it's no longer accurate. So it's right. like you got to just hang in there and keep keep checking frequently until we see something settle down. I think this is, you know, a topic near and dear to our hearts. We'll probably continue to follow it, even potentially put out some special blogs um, in that regard. So for listeners who are listening, this episode comes out mid-November. Information is going to change by then. But we wanted to make sure that if you are listening, that you did check into this going forward, because we all know we get wrapped up with year-end updates in that regards. There's other some other major changes happening with year-end as well. that we've seen coming through we've uh, on the provider side we're seeing a big shift in enms that everybody needs to be aware of what are you seeing in the modifier realm uh there was there was um modifier jay-z which was going to apply to some of the medication billing um where it was sort of in addition to the jw and sort of the wastage and stuff and so some hospitals weren't accurately reporting some of those codes. So they added JZN. I think it was for the ones that was like for the rest of the, I can't remember, honestly, I've been looking so much 340B, but JZ was one of them. It may not have big, a very big impact because of status indicators on some of those medications. It's kind of hard. I, I definitely want to reread through that one to see if there's any advice to, to provide or get ready for. Um, not that there's been a ton of changes to them right now, but, you know, for a future topic, one of the areas that I'm very interested in um, is the J1 modifiers. I call them the, the silent killer. So there's something there. There's more and more of them. It's basically how at a very, very high level, it's bundling of the reimbursement on the outpatient side, like, like DRGs work on the inpatient side. Um, what do you do if you've got two J1s? Uh, that pay the higher one. What if you, you know, are are there any strategies there 
to, to focus on um, around those J1 modifiers. That's something I'm starting to look at and do a lot of research into that I find very interesting. A lot of people don't even know that there's a J1 modifier or what it can do to your, to your, your reimbursement. I think I think that's a key point, and I think that's where for organizations who are you know building out their charge master and revenue integrity programs, um, and as we get into our geek out session here um, coming up after our first break, you know it is it, these annual updates for everybody is not just dependent on your compliance teams, but you really do need to pull in your revenue integrity and make sure your billing and front end counterparts are at the table as well. Um, you know, we're, we all tend to pull in coding in that mid cycle because that's where we all live in the rev and tech space, but got to make sure our, our other counterparts on all fronts know um, because anything happening to the claim actually does impact patient access at the end of the day as well. So just right. kind of thinking it more broadly, um, keeping everybody oppressed. Yeah. Gretchen, final thoughts, the thoughts on these to- hot topics before we move to our first break. Do your homework. Absolutely. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. Fine Medical serves a growing base of more than 800 active hospitals and health systems nationwide. Their best practices are hardwired through technology solutions, proven to help hospitals achieve sustainable top performance. Their well-published results include improving financial performance, physician and staff alignment, patient experience, compliance, and patient safety and quality measures. Learn more at vinemedical.com. That's V-Y-N-E medical.com. And we're back. Uh, Thanks everybody for letting us take a quick break. In this segment, we are moving on to our debate. Uh, This is where we talk about industry trends, hot topics, out-of-box ideas, things of that nature um, to keep with the theme of our episode, uh, Gretchen, can you share more about what we've been creating here at the Wilshire Group to support our colleagues across the revenue integrity space? Absolutely. Um, what would be really a funny podcast is if you had me and Hank Smither, the other founding partner of Wilshire, debate what revenue integrity is. Um, and, 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 and he knows it gets me all riled up and we have somewhat of a difference opinion, and uh, but then so does everybody else. So we're going to talk a little bit about rev integrity, departments, programs, concepts, uh, and then also sort of how we've defined it at Wilshire, how we sort of lived it at various clients, and and basically walk through what I call the eight pillars of revenue integrity. And I will tell you that. Just this year, we developed, we were helping a client on the East Coast develop their own internal program. And they did, and they used several of our pillars. They stood them up, as we said, it was really fun. And to hear them adopt our language and vocabulary was really exciting. And to see them understand it, 
get it going and, and really enjoy it. it was really a really fun project. So I thought I would start with just the fact that, oh, let's see, two and a half, three years ago now, there was a, a meeting of the advisory group did a, a sort of a council meeting on Rev Integrity it was one of the two main topics of the day. And I did some presentation around what I'd done at Cedars and the program we built there. But they had done uh, their, their great research, checking with others about what they thought. And some of the definitions were hilarious. Um, one of my favorite was, I had a quote here, revenue integrity is like cotton candy. It appears to be exciting, but once you bite it, it disappears. <laughs> well, the revenue integrity is in the eye of the beholder. It's about protecting the revenue that you have, ensuring it's compliant and optimizing it. Um, and then some poor fellow, revenue integrity is the accuracy of charging and documentation, dot, dot, dot. It's difficult to define. <laughs> so, so everybody kind of um, knows they want it. And then, you know, you've seen one Rev Integrity program, you've seen one Rev Integrity program. And that's fine, right? So, so people have to do it differently, different places. You, you set up a program at Providence years ago. Remember, Wiltshire was there to help out with some of the Charge Master stuff. Um, but what made me define the pillars was I need something, right? I need something that defines it and help operationalize it. All of the above, staff it, job descriptions, protocols, charge protocol, charge master. And we're going to go through some of all the, the pillars. But like I tell people, you don't have to choose all eight. You know, you may want to be one, four of the eight, or you want to do, you've got four, you want to add two right now. And then maybe in a couple of years, you want to add two more. So they can be, there's they can be a la carte or they can come together. And I think the way, uh, if you get it buzzing with all eight, you have a pretty robust program that can do some pretty interesting things. That's how I've approached it. What have, what have you done? Yeah, I think I, you know, I look back to, you know, 10 years ago when, when Wilshire came into my life and we were in that infancy stage of like, Hey, we've have an established program. Um, but we have five established programs and we're trying to figure out what's going to be the one for my organization at that point in time. And how are we going to, you know, model it? And then how are we going to pave it forward for future growth after somebody leaves? And I would say 90% of it is really most of those pillars. There are, you know, then the political components of it of like, well, who should own this and who should own revenue integrity? Ultimately, I think from my perspective, like just taking even a step back before we jump into what should be in revenue integrity, which I, I love that we both in an agreement on the eight pillars, a hundred percent, um, is, you know, revenue integrity should be in revenue cycle. It, that's what it is part of. It should report up to your senior most leader directly in your revenue cycle um, versus reporting up through PFS or this area. It really should have it standalone. Um, and you'll see that in listeners who come and watch us talk on YouTube, on the YouTube channel, you'll, you'll be able to see the actual pillars um, in, in the images and what we're going to talk about, but there's some compliancy around it. And while, why you want your program not to be necessarily a direct report up through a director in a space of like PFS or coding in, in that area and have its own, own real structure um, and, and, 
platform, I think, says a lot for an organization because usually your revenue integrity leaders are helping prepare things for your board and report out risk and risk management. So just kind of putting that out there. And I, I've seen that now in two different organizations that I've been with and partnering with peers and, and helping our clients now in the revenue integrity space, really trying to get that mindset of like, how are we our standalone, but integrated? And I think of revenue integrity as like, I'm sure I would love to be part of that debate with Hank. <laughs> it started a little bit at our retreat last weekend, but uh, really I see us being kind of that uh, cog in the middle of, uh, with all the spokes coming off of us in the center of revenue cycle. And we touch everybody. It's not just, everybody's like, oh, billing, revenue integrity is part of the back end. No, revenue integrity is the full revenue cycle. And it, that's why it's important to be a standalone in, in I, my mind. I, I agree. I agree. And the, the, the inf- interesting thing about it is it, the team is if you're, if the program, if you're really running it well, in my opinion, it's going to have connections uh, throughout the organization. These are some of the people that are going to be directly connected to service line leadership, service line management, imaging directors, pharmacy directors, ambulatory clinic directors, um, et cetera. These people are out there. They're known entities that are part of the Rev Integrity Program. At the end of the day, we are trying to ensure the, the financial health of the organization and the providers. So we are looking to ensure that for everything that for which we incur a cost, we are offsetting that with some sort of revenue in some way. But just just setting up charges and so forth is is not enough. Um, You you have to be very strategic. And I think whenever I approach something, maybe a new service line, for example, the idea, you know, you've got options. You've got, let's say you're in an epic environment, which is what I'm used to. Um, You've got engaged providers. You're going to be instituting uh, some Proc doc processes, functionality in those clinics. You've got hard code, soft code decisions to make. Um, and my idea is the way I think about it is patients are coming in here. They're going to have this stuff done. They're going to be using these supplies, these medications, these procedures. And ultimately, I need to get a claim out the door as quickly, compliantly, and completely as possible. So, what I'm thinking in my mind is how, how, few steps can I get it to, to be complete and that way. And usually what I try to do is leverage the system as much as possible, no human intervention until there's either an exception process that needs to, there's some error of some sort we have to look at. Um, CCI edits is the great example of that. <clears throat> or I want to intentionally look at something before it goes up. In other words, I want a concurrent review prior to billing. I can do that too. But the ultimate, the ultimate idea is to structure the revenue capture as simply as possible and that you're having as little manual intervention as possible. So, and, and that's just sort of the, the, the gist of it. And then I think the eight pillars are the operational arm of how you set up a program to do that. And you know, I wanted to just kind of go through them. If yeah, that's- well, yeah, let me pull them up. So we are sharing them with our listeners. Thank you. So 
always, the, the one thing that everybody, I mean, the variation that existed at this conference that I was at, I was speaking about earlier, was um, the charge master was pretty much everybody had the charge master in revenue integrity. Nobody had it out of, of rev integrity. And I thought that was really funny. And of course, you know, charge masters have been around forever. Um, it, just now in an integrated environment with the electronic health record that they've become so much more sort of understood or known. I think even price transparency pulled charge masters even further out of the closet. So, you know, they're trying to set up chart, you know, trying to understand how charges are for different procedures, but sort of uh, like knee arthroscopy, you know, hey, how, right. do we, how are they? Like, where, where do charges come from? And they're like, somebody says a charge master. Well, who's that? Where is that? You know, there's, there's a whole other level of exposure. And I still think there's a lot of opportunity there. But CDM, your EAP in Epic is the cornerstone, the backbone, whatever you want to call it, of, of all, of all um, programs. And married with the charge master, though, and I always am a stickler for this, and they're a pain, are the charge protocols. So I got, I can show you what I'm charging here, but sometimes I don't know why. <laughs> Never a good situation. So the charge protocol examples, the simple ones are, what are my ED levels for the hospital? Levels one through five in critical care. What services are included in a level one versus a level five? If you're using the level of service calculator in Epic, good for you. I love it. I've seen it work built lots of different ways, um, but it's a very sort of thorough process that you go through to get that calculator to work. And then boom, here come your levels. Mm -hmm. you, you can also have policies with regard to hard code, soft code, things done in clinics, hard code. I do hard code, soft code by, by revenue codes is the easiest way yep. to approach it. I think one of the debates we always have in charge protocols too is what's an implant versus non-implantable <laughs> in that regards, right? And and yep. everybody's philosophy is a little bit different in that. Yep. Um, but it's important that your charge master team has that documented as a policy, not a procedure, so that it's supported in your final decision-making in that regards. Yep. I also think too, you know, uh, another area that is important is supplies and uh, supplies. So do, do you have a cost threshold? Do you, do you not set up separate for anything that costs below 25 bucks, for example, five bucks, that's a charge protocol. Um, what are your sort of markups? Those are also included, you know, pricing yep. included in some of those, especially where you have, um, groupings of sort of cost bands, if you will, or whatever. I think the other one too that is often missed is when hospitals typically charge uh, for surgical services by time and level. A lot of places have four levels, some have five, some have more. Um, but that's a general one that we often see. And they're usually grouped by types of procedures. The arthroscopy is a level two, some sort of, I don't know, kidney transplants, a level five, you know, just to make examples, but a lot of time Rev Integrity isn't involved with the alignment of those, those levels and, and the resources used. 
And it's an issue, it's something to be aware of because sometimes let's say we're doing this brand new procedure, where do you put it? Well, somebody's got to make that decision. Usually the OR has that sort of criteria and they're using it to, to, to determine where it goes, but you want to make sure that they're applying it correctly and that mm -hmm. they're making changes that you don't know of because that's going to impact the charging, which is going to impact your revenue. So protocols, we've got a lot of them. Yeah to share them. What's your late charge policy? What's your closing counter policy? You know, all that stuff that is just, um, it, just, just doing, just doing your homework kind of thing. As I call it, you got to have it. Well, and I think with that too, you know, that example back to the OR making decisions on leveling and where it fits, we now with pricing transparency even have to be more more aware because when the question does not come back to the OR is why was this procedure charged at level three versus a level five, it now comes back to revenue integrity to say, how are we going to defend this and defend these decisions that we've made? And, um, you know, having that integrated person into that decision-making process and, and being aware of it to reset label, uh, reset those levels. And then as you know, organizations acquire or become affiliated together and consolidate to a single EMR to save money for both organizations, making sure that alignment is always in, in lockstep too. It, it really becomes the bread and butter of that routine maintenance of charge master and charge protocol. Yeah. Yep. And I think the other, the other big piece, and I, I mentioned it earlier, is the hard code, soft code strategy. The best decision that uh, Thea Campbell and I ever made at Cedars when we were going live with Epic, it was, it was like this negotiation across the table with a piece of paper. All right, here, you take 360, 761, and 750. Agreed? Yes. I'll take everything else. So everything else for the hospital was hard-coded in the charge master. All the, all the charges with those revenue, those three revenue codes at Cedars, soft-coded. Clear as day, your lane, my lane, we get it. It also worked very well, apparently, uh, 10 years later when they were starting to implement single path coding operations. For whatever reason, this strong division in Clarity helped significantly input those tools. So, you know, that's something I'm super passionate about. Everybody knows code integration. I say it all the time, drives my team crazy. Um, but if you get that strategy down and build either to it or you transfer eventually into it and do some cleanup, it is extremely worth it and extremely streamlining. Absolutely. I, I, I think it makes it the easiest. And I think for organizations listening, one of the other things is, is as you start to bring on your ambulatory surgical centers, if you're going to hard code at those locations, which we've seen several start to do, you still have to have that def definite definition. And if you're linked to a major health system, you still need to f follow the same suit so that you don't have a difference in how those procedures are being charged because that's when you're going to start to get questioned. Mm -hmm. Or if you get a lot of those edits at the hospital of missing revenue code or chart, you know, uh, codes that have no place to go on the claim, you've got a code integration problem, which basically means you have a charge master problem. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, easy to fix. I'm going to put easy in quotes because Mark would roll his eyes at me. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, some of these things, when you look at the eight pillars, you're like, okay, that crosses over, that's crossover. And they do. They're all, they're all dovetailed together. But in 
it's helpful to carve them out to define each one a little bit more distinctly so that there's full understanding around it. So typically I jump from charge master to charge trigger and capture. We're living in such an electronic day now that the majority, this was a statistic at the advisory board that blew my mind. They did this broad uh, scan of many, many hospitals across the country that, that were answering all these questions. Question was, what percentage of your charge trigger is automated? <clears throat> and most everybody said greater than 90%. Makes sense. How many of you are satisfied with your charge capture setup? 10%. Only 10%. <clears throat> we're confident that everything was being charged correctly, timely, et cetera. So that right there is a clarion call. That, that, that said, what is going on there? So your Rev Integrity team, you got your charge master team, you've probably got a lead or a manager over that, depending on whether you're a system or a single hospital, et cetera. You've got <clears throat> specialists, often by service line. You've got a lab person, you've got a supply person. They sometimes cross over. The charge capture and trigger piece is if I'm if I'm the lab guru on the team or the radiant guru on the team imaging, I'm going to know how those chargers are triggered from the applications that they live in. So imaging is radiant. I know where my charges live in radiant. I know how they get triggered. I know what makes the machine work. And I try to leverage the machine as much as possible. I'm not, a, I, I'm a huge fan of link charges. If this happens 100% every time this happens, link the charge, make it happen, use the system. A lot of people are very afraid of that. Well, some people say, well, you know, they can use more, more than one, but they always use one. And I said, well, then put the one in there. And if you want, and then figure out a process to go back and figure out the additionals, if there's some other, pro, you know, if you're worried about missing some. So all of that capture and trigger should be automated today as much as possible. You've got closed encounters that keep that from happening. If you're in a married environment, PB and HB, I called, um, we called it the great divorce at Cedars because what was happening was my outpatient revenue, revenue we finally went up with on PB. HB is happy, we're, we're doing our thing. The chargers are filing, going to claims. Suddenly we bring up PB and I'm like, where, where are the charges? Where are the clinic charges? And then somebody said, um, well, they're not getting issued because we were doing OPC, that workflow or performable chargeable in Epic where the physician does his or her thing, that charge triggers and I clone my HB charge off of that, right? Well, if the encounters are closed, that doesn't happen. So multiple conversations, lots of education for me. And we basically said, we want a divorce. So what does that mean? So we let the charges file, we clone file to the router, hold PB, allow HB for most of the charges. Some exceptions, some of the, some of the procedures have to have the procedure note signed and won't file. That's fine. That's more of a complex thing. E&Ms are the things I'm typically talking about and or small supplies. Um, and it actually works very, very well. And you know you can also institute a self-auditing process if you're concerned about any of those claims and documentation. But you know everybody was involved with the decision, the 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 change, and then the follow-up. So and it's again sort of like what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, 
having those conversations with a bunch of different team members, and then using the system in a different way. So um, I think this is a good opportunity for everybody to know the eight pillars that we're talking through here are not just for the hospital. They can be automatically applied to your professional setting. And as more of us are seeing, and we recommend integration between PB and HB in that marriage, these are things that will help actually marry those things together. So, you know, and these are just, while we call them the pillars and there are foundational building blocks, these are the standard foundational building blocks, I think, to any good successful program. So um, Mm -hmm. you guys can take this and and ask us more questions or, you know, reach out in that regards too. Um, Gretchen, we are really... uh, going here. So I'm going to speed us up a little bit. Tell me all about uh, the strategic pricing pillar. You're so funny. I I want to talk about crew strategic pricing. So long story short about charge capture to trigger is the application integration. Crew stands for Clinical Revenue Enterprise Work Group. That's the team I was talking about earlier that we implemented at another another organization recently. Basically, this this is a integration of your charge master into your clinical modules. And it's the monitoring process and it's led by Rev Integrity. It is the time where you talk about the money that comes from the clinical modules. Meets weekly, meets whenever you want it. You have different people on your Rev Integrity team that take over different areas. They ensure that the charges get in and get out of the clinical modules. Very efficient, very, very uh, well-liked program. We can help you do that. I love crew. I love setting up crew. And again, you may have the most perfect charge master in the world, but if it's not in your clinical modules, there's nothing happening. All right, that's my plug for crew. I went really fast on that one. I think you like that. Um, Strategic pricing. So everybody wants it. Nobody knows exactly what it means. So for me, for, for sort of like our Wilshire definition of strategic pricing is not just how you price for your services. So over the last several years, we've had a lot of data become available to us. We have tools, we have charge master management tools. We have groups that specialize in hospital pricing or physician pricing. They pull every piece of data element you can possibly get from the public files, the SAP data, the MedPAR data, and it shows you how you look compared to others. You can compare yourself to your market basket, like providers, you know, all this. You can look at your multiples of an APC for a hospital charge. You can look at your markup factors for your drugs. You have a lot of information. That's not strategy in my opinion. Strategy is, what am I gonna do with all that information now? So I say, you know, a lot of people, CFOs and others say, oh, this is great, we have this information now. Let's make uh, the markup on APCs times five, four, five, whatever your number is. Okay, look at your data now. Well, I've got stuff that's 12 times APC. I've got stuff that's, you know, one and a half times APC. You want me to go to all this at one? You, You can't do all that at one time. Otherwise, your revenue will go crazy. Your revenue structure, you can make it revenue neutral. Let's say you do that, okay? But you are going to have super highs and super lows run very quickly through your patient accounting system. Your payers are going to say, what the heck is going on? Your your clinical departments are going to be traumatized. Usually the ones that end up on the deal don't matter, but the ones that are down on the deal, (laughs) that's who you hear from. Strategic pricing is... How do we take the data and make meaningful changes and over what time? And I'm not just saying multiples of APC. I'm talking about, let's think through 
oncology pricing. Let's say I have an issue with my markup on medications. Let's say I'm too low for the contracts that I have. What am I going to do? So, okay, I'm going to change them. I'm going to bake it into my annual rate increase process. You cannot forget the impact to your contracts when you do strategic pricing. Everybody goes, okay, I finally got the information I've always wanted. I know where I'm in the market basket. I've got my high, I got my low, I got my multiples. Let's do it. Do it. In an, at the same time that you're doing your annual rate increase. Otherwise, you're going to hear from your payers. You might have exceeded, it, 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 you know, exceeded your, your annual caps. All that needs to be baked in at the same time. But what I think there is still more important to look at is what is the, the impact going to be on your patient population? Patients in cancer care are usually patients that are going through a period of time of care with the provider. If you change prices during a course of care, it can be very alarming to the patients. What are you going to do in advance of that change to ensure everybody needs, everybody knows what's going on, why it's going on, and what is our messaging going to be with our patients in advance or after? Um, that's some stuff that we've done a lot of work on to make sure that there aren't any surprises. And there are a lot of things that you can do in that, in that space to ensure that changes and how they get, if they need to be communicated to, to people directly, um, and what are those talking points? What are the things you can do um, during for patients already on service, et cetera? To me, that's strategic pricing. If you touch a charge in a cath lab, for example, you're not gonna hear too much clatter or feedback. You change your clinic visit for the hospital by $10 and you know what's going to break loose overnight. Yep. Yep. That's strategy. That's strategy in my opinion. And I think that rev integrity people, especially the experience that we have now, especially I know for sure at Wilshire, that's where we focus our attention in trying to help our clients. Yeah. And I think, and I think the change with that as well as a step back and say, okay, Let's start making sure that we're partnering with our managed care contracting and in some organizations, even population health, as they're now being integrated into managed care to talk about like what is going to be the risk component of this for clinical and quality outcomes tied back to the contracting as well. So having those three departments really integrated and having that conversation is really key when it comes to the pricing component along with finance, but at the same time, you know, it, that's just that little bit of a portion. We got to take a quick break. We will be right back, everybody, um, to talk more about the pillar. There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance. And we're back. Okay, Gretchen. So we covered four out of the eight so far. And um, 
we're we're right on track on time so don't worry about recording time i know that's always a concern um so you know we have our normal old school processes too that uh, you know just like the bread and butter of charge master where i think we have the other a couple other pillars um in here that fall into that bread and butter of revenue integrity or kind of that audit compliance space uh, that really should fall into the revenue integrity um you want to give us a quick light brief touch on those and um yeah. then we'll talk about the fund program you want me to, I, I like to say I, I should wrap through this part i it is amazing to me that a whole almost hour can go by and and i'm like oh and another thing and another thing and <laughs> i thought oh no way the eight eight pillars are gonna go so fast and be done um which is kind of embarrassing but anyway i i do think that the three pillars that i've always had there is a part which is process improvement uh data integrity and sort of charge audit and review. Those three just are sort of, like you said, bread and butter fundamental. You, you, you have to have somebody that is looking at data integrity issues as they flow through the system. What did the router just do? Are you gonna auto append a modifier? Okay, let's do that. Let's make sure that you've got some sort of check and balance through your audit team or, or your charge audit team that is ensuring that it's appropriate on a regular basis. Um, you also have to have eyes on it. So ED is a great example. I've seen teams develop that do 100% audit of emergency room claims. There mm -hmm. is much that can be missed. Usually all you need to do is show the net return of having those, the, those resources review those, those charges um, and you make up for it. You know, a lot of times there are procedures that aren't set up yet in the charge master that they do that suddenly are done and need to be charged for. Labor and delivery is an interesting one in that space. A lot of people feel like that's nothing much there, not a lot of reimbursement. Actually, there are there's a fair amount of pre-delivery uh, services that occur that are chargeable um, and billable separately from even the delivery. We see places that sometimes forget to charge for the delivery, it, the actual delivery, and in the, in the, you're basically running a small OR over there. We found a lot of we found a lot of revenue in in uh, OB and stuff like that. Um, and then just keeping your eyes on the prize, making sure that you have somebody, a retired nurse, or somebody who just wanted to get out of, of patient care that knows how to look at charges and the things that are on those accounts. You just wanna keep somebody's eyes on it. And then process improvement, for me, it was always proving our net contribution, taking projects from identification through corrective action, and tracking for a year what the net impact of that interaction or intervention was yep. um, in, a, in a way that was able to be communicated easily. And also we created something at Cedars that I've used elsewhere called scorecards. Scorecards is a monthly little snapshot of how you're doing with the project. And it really, it, it, it actually encourages a lot of clinical buy-in. They look at it, it's, it's a scorecard. How'd I do? Did I get three stars? Why'd I get two stars? You know, it, it ended up having a lot more meaning than we thought. I think I think to add to the point on when we talk charge audit, charge oversight as well, it's having that fundamental program that does put some of the responsibility also back on the clinical areas. So making sure that the clinical managers and their teams are aware of what they're doing and how they're and how are they performing and are they missing stuff and what are they missing and how do we educate them to that? And that state keeps your revenue integrity people connected and embedded with their clinical counterparts, both on the professional and the hospital side of saying, hey, 
what are those new services? What are those pieces of equipment, um, material supplies that you're using that we need to be aware of? And, you know, I know recently working with one of our clients, we found out they were missing NTAP payment, additional add-on payments through the NTAP reimbursement module of, you know, $1,400 per encounter on those patients. And it was because they didn't have that integration. But once we were able to develop that integration between them, again, all of those conversations, and we were able to say, oh, well, what about this in pharmacy? And what about that? And saw some big net reimbursement at the end of the day. But it was the clinical department not knowing to say, oh, we're doing this, or we're trialing this product, or we're doing that. So making sure that that's, your programs have those embedded in that bread and, bed and bread or butter portion. I can't even talk now. I'm like stumbling over my own words. This is funny. Well, you know, it's also usually the teams that end up creating the most interesting RevGuardian checks. So there is so much more that you can be doing very, very specific with Red Guardian checks, you know, um, there's a lot that's in foundation now, which is great. But, you know, one of the areas that we found one time, we had some, this is not, this was a claim edit for something else, but we noticed that there were some uh, pathology charges on the account, but there were no procedure charges. And we're like, well, that's funny. How'd you, how'd you get something to test with what you did? Call them up the area. Oh yeah. We started doing biopsies. Uh, yeah, a couple months ago and, and we're like, okay. So, you know, you know, if you do have a revenue code for pathology test, but you don't have any revenue codes for any procedures, that's a pretty easy check to put in place. And you find some interesting thing. The other point too, about crew that you, you reminded me of it, 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 it's, it's the three pronged effect. It's rev integrity. It's the clinical partnership and it's the it partnership. And the it partnership is usually split across PV, HB, modules, clinical modules. So you've got, you know, all your, either it's Willow, HBPV, and pharmacy people and Rev Integrity people, for example, those are the ones that compile those, those groups. And you really have to have them all there in order to make meaningful change. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was something that we did over a 10-year period at, at Cedar Sinai. We created something that we called GAP for fun. It was the the uh, government audit program. And the scenario was basically RACs entered hospitals through the door at HIM, coding, upcoding, downcoding, DRG, correctness, all of that kind of stuff. And then in the same batch, shortly after they got this patient classification questions, was it inpatient, was it outpatient? Should, well, should it have been inpatient or outpatient? And HIM is sitting there going, oh, I have the order. And, uh, you know, what am I? I'm not quite sure. Then the other thing is all these rack audits were being thrown across on spreadsheets from one group. You look at it and you look at it and here's the ones you look at. CFO is asking, how much money or is it, is it play here? Is it stake? How much have we won? How much have we lost? What do I need to reserve against? And I was like, time out. And, and, and Patricia Cattell, who was the vice president um, at the time of RevCycle, I said, let me try to take the game. Let me give you this for, for a little bit. And so what we did is we created a group that consisted of a case manager, a real season sort of internal consultant of billing, PFS, compliance, the works. We bought a database. We implemented the database. We took a long time to do that because we had to just define discreetly the field that we wanted to see and to be able to say, 
this is the net impact of something, not gross charges that have been denied. I want to know what the net is. We got to show how much we saved, how much we lost, how much was ever completely at risk. And what were the issues and what were the issues where we lost and why did we lose? And at what level did we lose? Did we lose the first time or the, the ALJ? What's our interest payment? We were good. We won a lot and they had to pay us a lot of interest. Um, and then finally, at the end of several years, I probably took us a good five years to really get it finished. We were up and running during that time, but to get it really well done. And it was so it was was very, very um, rewarding because eventually the the data that we would we would submit would end up being even used in our um, accounting audits as what was needed to be reserved against what was being helped. We showed the the impact of the program. Um, I got to go to D.C. and, and sort of um, work for rack reform on, on the Hill, which was really exciting and nerve wracking. Um, and it just ended up being a really robust program. We started to what we called gap ourselves. We did gap analyses. Why recreate the wheel? We just followed the format that the um, OIG uses to conduct an audit. And we said, here are their main issues. Here are the evergreen issues. Here's stuff that we want to look at. Here's issues with Pepper. Quarterly review of the Pepper data together in, with HIM, with clinical leaders. And it was really a way to tie it all together and, and, and have some great impact. And we, um, it, it ended up that it expanded to even work with some clinical uh, commercial denials and appeals, that group. Um, and it really brought the focus of the clinical mindset to defend what was happening at, with the payers that were denying us, whether or not they were government or not. And um, it, it actually was just a great program. I think we're going to do a show, a, another podcast. Yeah, we actually are. Uh, that's a great plug. Uh, for season two, it will be episode two. Um, we are going to have some special guests from Cedars, um, now retired, but um, come and really talk about how it was built, how it was developed and go from there. Um, it will be one of our mid-cycles uh, spotlights as well. Yeah, we're getting the band back together. I asked uh, Betty Johnson and Rick Lash um, if they would come on and do the podcast with me. Um, we They're a hoot and probably will tell stories that I, I'll be embarrassed about, but that's okay. And But uh, we got a lot of recognition. We reported sort of our gap analyses up through compliance and, and so forth. So that was that piece that was done. We get a letter. One of our greatest moments is we got a letter from the OIG citing a case that was implant recall device kind of thing. And, and we were able to say, yes, we actually already initiated the rebuilding of that last month. We found that also through our own review. Um, and then there's also been some interesting information, uh, comments by the DOJ, like in 2019, and I can find the reference, but the DOJ said when they're considering actions, and, and consequences and potentially looking at uh, a fraudulent situation or where they're gonna be you know, reviewing a provider or they've reviewed a provider and they've got an issue and there's something that's gonna be leveraged. One of the things that they say they do look at is an internal oversight group in the revenue cycle that is looking for issues because we are the best equipped to understand where the risks are and how do we go about that that risk mitigation? And that's what GAP was designed to do. Very cool. Well, so we have hit the eight pillars. 
um you it, listeners you can see how they all are really important and they all play a different part but as gretchen said it you know it, it's an a la carte it doesn't have to be all in your revenue integrity space but you want to pick the keep the four bread and butter ones for sure in there but you can definitely see the integration of all teams and how revenue integrity hits that spoke portion gretchen what are some final thoughts you have this is uh, one of the areas that uh, we love working in the most. If there's anything we can do to help you develop sort of your own program or institute a pillar here or there, uh, we would be happy to do that. And how can listeners stay in contact with you if they want to reach out to you directly? You can call my agent. I'm just, they can, <laughs> uh, my email is there, g.case at the Wilshire group.net. Um, you know, Feel free to send me a note, love to connect, spend some time, answer questions. Something else we could consider too in the future is just sort of like some, some you know, Q&A things that we have from the, from the teams that, or for other, from listeners. That would be something fun to do too. Yeah. Everybody, we normally would switch to a segment on the Wilshire Lab right now. However, with this being a special episode, we opted to take our full hour and work on just the eight pillars here. Um, you can check out the Wilshire group um, in, in total on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Um, and you can reach out to Gretchen via LinkedIn. Um, that is it for us today. Thank you, Gretchen, for joining as my co-host while Daniel's on a little mini vacay. Uh, and uh, everybody, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you, Evan. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or find us on Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be found at Daniel underscore TWG. The Wilshire Group is at TWG Health for us on Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on our Instagram at Wilshire IT RepChat. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out on YouTube at the Wilshire IIT RevCast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on a topic, email us at thewilshirepodcast at thewilshiregroup.net. The best way for you to support this podcast is to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT RevCast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.